Chapter Two of the Daffodil Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Daffodil Mystery by Edgar Wallace. Chapter Two. The Hunter Declines His Quarry. This is Mr. Milburgh said Lynn awkwardly. If Mr. Milburgh had heard the last words of his employer, his face did not betray the fact. His smile was set, and not only curved the lips, but filled the large, lustreless eyes. Tarling gave him a rapid survey, and drew his own conclusions. The man was a born lackey, plump of face, bald of head, and bent of shoulder, as though he lived in a perpetual gesture of abasement. "'Shut the door, Milburgh, and sit down.' This is Mr. Tarling, er, Mr. Tarling is, er, a detective. Indeed, sir. Milburgh bent a deferential head in the direction of Tarling, and the detective, watching for some change in colour, some twist of face, any of those signs which had so often betrayed to him the convicted wrongdoer, looked in vain. A dangerous man, he thought. He glanced out of the corner of his eye to see what impression the man had made upon Ling Chu. To the ordinary eye, Ling Chu remained an impassive observer, but Tarling saw that faint curl of a lip, an almost imperceptible twitch of the nostrils, which invariably showed on the face of his attendant when he smelt a criminal. "'Mr. Tarling is a detective,' repeated Lin. "'He is a gentleman I heard about when I was in China.' "'You know I was in China for three months, when I made my tour round the world?' he asked Tarling. Tarling nodded. "'Oh, yes, I know,' he said. "'You stayed at the Bund Hotel. You spent a great deal of time in the native quarter, and you had rather an unpleasant experience as the result of making an experiment in opium-smoking.' Lynn's face went red, and then he laughed. "'You know more about me than I know about you, Tarling.' he said, with a note of asperity in his voice, and turned again to his subordinate. "'I have reason to believe that there has been money stolen in this business by one of my cashiers,' he said. "'Impossible, sir,' said the shocked Mr. Milburgh. "'Wholly impossible. Who could have done it, and how clever of you to have found it out, sir? I always say that you see what we old ones overlook, even when it is right under our noses.' Mr. Lynn smiled complacently. "'It will interest you to know, Mr. Tarling,' he said, "'that I myself have some knowledge of and acquaintance with the criminal classes. In fact, there is one unfortunate protégé of mine, whom I have tried very hard to reform for the past four years, who is coming out of prison in a couple of days. I took up this work,' he said modestly, "'because I feel it is the duty of us.' who are in a more fortunate position, to help those who have not had a chance in the cruel competition of the world. Tarling was not impressed. "'Do you know the person who has been robbing you?' he asked. "'I have reason to believe it is a girl whom I have summarily dismissed tonight, and whom I wish you to watch.' The detective nodded. "'This is rather a primitive business,' he said with the first faint hint of a smile he had shown. "'Hadn't you your own shop detective who could take that job in hand? "'Petty larceny is hardly in my line. "'I understood that this was bigger work.' "'He stopped, because it was obviously impossible to explain "'just why he had thought as much, "'in the presence of the man whose conduct "'originally had been the subject of his inquiries. 
"'To you it may seem a small matter. "'To me it is very important,' said Mr. Lynn profoundly. "'Here is a girl highly respected by all her companions, "'and consequently a great influence on their morals, "'who, as I have reason to believe, "'has steadily and persistently falsified my books, "'taken money from the firm, "'and at the same time has secured the good will of all "'with whom she has been brought into contact.' Obviously she is more dangerous than another individual who succumbs to a sudden temptation. It may be necessary to make an example of this girl, but I want you clearly to understand, Mr. Tarling, that I have not sufficient evidence to convict her. Otherwise I might not have called you in. You want me to get the evidence, eh? said Tarling curiously. Who is this lady, may I venture to ask, sir? It was Milburgh who interposed the question. Miss Ryder, replied Lynn. "'Miss Ryder?' Milberg's face took on a look of blank surprise as he gasped the words. "'Miss Ryder? Oh, no! Impossible!' "'Why impossible?' demanded Mr. Lynn sharply. "'Well, sir, I, I meant,' stammered the manager, "'it is so unlikely. She is such a nice girl.' Thornton Lynn shot a suspicious glance at him. "'You have no particular reason for wishing to shield Miss Ryder, have you?' he asked coldly. "'No, sir, not at all. I beg of you not to think that,' appealed the agitator Mr. Milburgh. "'Only it seems so extraordinary.' "'All things are extraordinary that are out of the common,' snapped Lynn. "'It would be extraordinary if you were accused of stealing, Milburgh. It would be very extraordinary indeed, for example, if we discovered that you were living a five-thousand-pounds life on a nine-hundred-pound salary, eh?' Only for a second did Milburgh lose his self-possession. The hand that went to his mouth shook, and Tarling, whose eyes had never left the man's face, saw the tremendous effort which he was making to recover his equanimity. "'Yes, sir, that would be extraordinary,' said Milburgh steadily. Lynn had lashed himself again into the old fury, and if his vitriolic tongue was directed at Milburgh, his thoughts were centred upon that proud and scornful face which had looked down upon him in the office. "'It would be extraordinary if you were sent to penal servitude as the result of my discovery that you had been robbing the firm for years,' he growled. "'And I suppose everybody else in the firm would say the same as you. How extraordinary!' "'I dare say they would, sir,' said Mr. Milburgh, his old smile back, the twinkle again returning to his eyes and his hands rubbing together in ceaseless ablutions. It would sound extraordinary, and it would be extraordinary, and nobody here would be more surprised than the unfortunate victim. Ha, ha! Perhaps not, said Lynn coldly. Only I want to say a few words in your presence, and I would like you to give them every attention. You have been complaining to me for a month past, he said, speaking with deliberation, about small sums of money being missing from the cashier's office. It was a bold thing to say, and in many ways a rash thing. He was dependent for the success of his hastily formed plan, not only upon Milberg's guilt, but upon Milberg's willingness to confess his guilt. If the manager agreed to stand sponsor to this lie, he admitted his own peculations, and Tarling, to whom the turn of the conversation had at first been unintelligible, began dimly to see the drift it was taking. "'I have complained that sums of money have been missing for the past month,' repeated Mr. Milburgh dully. 
The smile had gone from his lips and eyes. His face was haggard. He was a man at bay. "'This is what I said,' said Lynn, watching him. "'Isn't that the fact?' There was a long pause, and presently Milberg nodded. "'That is the fact, sir,' he said in a low voice. "'And you have told me that you suspected Miss Ryder of defalcations?' Again the pause, and again the man nodded. "'Do you hear?' asked Lynn triumphantly. "'I hear,' said Tarling quietly. "'Now, what do you wish me to do? Isn't this a matter for the police? I mean, the regular police?' Lynn frowned. "'The case has to be prepared first, he said. "'I will give you full particulars as to the girl's address and her habits, "'and it will be your business to collect such information "'as will enable us to put the case in the hands of Scotland Yard.' "'I see,' said Tarling, and smiled again. "'Then he shook his head. "'I'm afraid I can't come into the case, Mr. Lynn.' "'Can't come in?' said Lynn, in astonishment. "'Why not?' "'Because it's not my kind of job,' said Tarling. "'The first time I met you I had a feeling that you were leading me to one of the biggest cases I had ever undertaken. "'It shows you how one's instincts can lead one astray.' He smiled again and picked up his hat. "'What do you mean? You're going to throw up a valuable client?' "'I don't know how valuable you're likely to be,' said Tarling. "'But at the present moment the signs are not particularly encouraging.' I tell you I do not wish to be associated with this case, Mr. Lynn, and I think there the matter can end. You don't think it's worth while, eh? sneered Lynn. Yet when I tell you that I am prepared to give you a fee of five hundred guineas, if you gave me a fee of five thousand guineas or fifty thousand guineas, I should still decline to be associated with this matter, said Tarling, and his words had the metallic quality which precludes argument. At any rate, I am entitled to know why you will not take up this case. Do you know the girl? asked Lynn loudly. I have never met the lady, and probably never shall, said Tarling. I only know that I will not be concerned with what is called in the United States of America a frame-up. Frame-up? repeated the other. A frame-up. I dare say you know what it means. I will put the matter more plainly and within your understanding. For some reason or another, you have a sudden grudge against a member of your staff. I read your face, Mr. Lynn, and the weakness of your chin and the appetite of your mouth suggests to me that you are not over-scrupulous with the women who are in your charge. I guess, rather than know, that you have been turned down with a dull, sickening thud by a decent girl, and in your mortification you are attempting to invent a charge which has no substance and no foundation. Mr. Milberg, he turned to the other, and again Mr. Milberg ceased to smile, has his own reasons for complying with your wishes. He is your subordinate, and, moreover, the side threat of penal servitude for him if he refuses has carried some weight. Thornton Lynn's face was distorted with fury. I will take care that your behavior is widely advertised, he said. You have brought a most monstrous charge against me, and I shall proceed against you for slander. The truth is that you are not equal to the job I intend giving you, and you are finding an excuse for getting out. The truth is, replied Tarling, biting off the end of a cigar he had taken from his pocket, that my reputation is too good to be risked in associating with such a dirty business as yours. 
I hate to be rude, and I hate just as much to throw away good money. But I can't take good money for bad work, Mr. Lynn. And if you will be advised by me, you will drop this stupid scheme for vengeance, which your hurt vanity has suggested. It is the clumsiest kind of frame-up that was ever invented, and also you will go and apologize to the young lady, whom, I have no doubt, you have grossly insulted. He beckoned to his Chinese satellite, and walked leisurely to the door. Incoherent with rage, shaking in every limb with a weak man's sense of his own impotence, Lynn watched him until the door was half-closed. Then, springing forward with a strangled cry, he wrenched the door open and leapt at the detective. Two hands gripped his arm, and lifting him bodily back into the room, pushed him down into a chair. A not unkindly face blinked down at him, a face relieved from utter solemnity by the tiny laughter lines about the eyes. "'Mr. Lynn,' said the mocking voice of Tarling, "'you are setting an awful example to the criminal classes. It is a good job your convict friend is in jail.' Without another word he left the room. End of chapter 2